This week on Across the Peak, Rich and I are joined by Mike Sieglander to tell you how to select your first handgun. Welcome to the Across the Peak podcast, the show where Rich and Justin discuss preparedness, the birds and the bees, guns, history, tattoos, and well, basically all the stuff your old man should have taught you. Rich Brown's a failed 70s child actor, retired Marine Corps officer and former cop. Justin Carroll, he's a washed up former special operator, half-assed author, and adventurer at large. Learn life skills, harden the fuck up, and become a dangerous man. Get your damn boots on, gents, because we're going across the peak rich what's going on buddy dude this is a great episode i'm excited for everybody to hear it i think it turned out really well and whether you're someone who has been a shooter for years or this is completely foreign territory to you i think we got something for you I totally agree, man. So we've got your co-host from the American Warrior Show on, and we recorded that interview uh, a little bit ago. So, man, it, it's a good one, and I can't wait for can't wait for the listeners to hear about it, man. Yeah, totally. So, what are you drinking, man? Actually, real quick before we get into that, man, let me just take a moment to say if you have not visited our Instagram page at Across the Peak, all one word. You need to check that out. Kai is busting her butt every week to get cool stuff out there. And just so happens, uh, she is out in uh, Colorado or up in Colorado right now um, for a work trip. And I know she's going to be posting some cool stuff uh, while she's there. So be sure and check that stuff out. I love Colorado. We, we, we need to take a Colorado trip, man. You know, I don't know, man. I'm not the biggest fan of Colorado. What? It's not far from you. How far is it from Tucson where you live? Oh, let's see. I've got probably, I don't know, probably a four-hour drive to the southern border of, uh, and that's western Colorado, which is not is not exactly what most people imagine when they think of Colorado. It's a bit to get in the mountains still. you got to drive east a little bit to really get into the Rockies, but... I, I don't know, man. Uh, mostly, most of my time has been spent in like the greater Denver area, which which is saying like that's a pretty big area. Denver really, really sprawls Boulder and Golden and Breckenridge and Vail and uh, all those cities that surround Denver. But uh, it's very, very expensive place to live, man. And it seems uh, I heard a real estate agent call it the new Los Angeles because uh, most of that area now is a bunch of people that moved there from California and drove the real estate prices up. But whether that's true or not, I don't know. But uh, I personally, all the time I've spent in the big American West, I've greatly preferred Montana, Wyoming, Idaho. Yeah, They're just not as fancy as Colorado, I guess. No, that's true. That's true. I really enjoy the that Breckenridge Keystone kind of area, or even south of Denver. I just absolutely just I just can't stand Denver. That's just me. But anyway, well, Denver uh, and and yeah, Denver sits down on the down on the plains. Um, I I tend to yeah I tend to be a bigger fan of those smaller towns once you get up into the actual mountains. But uh, yeah, and anyhow, man, it's uh, I don't know, not really my. I, if I had to pick a favorite state, it probably wouldn't break my top 10. Oh, wow. It, it is down there. So what are you drinking? Well, I'm having a, this is a little off the beaten track here. I'm having a dead bird dunkle. Never heard of it. Well, that's because I made it and I picked the name of it, or, or Kai and I picked the name of it. We we tend to name the beers after the dogs, and this one's named after Ralph because his breath smells like dead birds. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> that's where that one came from. Oh, I love it. What well, about I'm you, buddy? Something, I'm doing something, you know, real original, having a Guinness, you know. Can't really go wrong with a Guinness, man. I tell you, dude, we are getting geared the fuck up for this Ireland-Iceland trip that's coming up here in a few weeks, man. And uh, hitting the uh, Guinness Brewery in Dublin is... We're not going to spend a ton of time in Dublin, man, but we are going to do that. Where are you going to be in, in Ireland? Are you flying into Dublin and moving out, or where are you, where are you flying into? We... We are flying into Dublin, and we'll probably spend a night there and then take the train up to Northern Ireland and spend our time probably mostly in Belfast and then uh, back down to Dublin for the return trip. Yeah, that's similar to what our plan was when when we were over there last... Well, when we were in Scotland, we were going to take a ferry over. But I'd like to go to Dublin just because it's, you know, the place to go. But my ancestors came from Northern Ireland, yeah, uh, around Londonderry and Oma, you know, um, when they... Uh, 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 it's just dairy, buddy. <laughs> well, you watch yourself. listen there, pal. It'll always be Londonderry to me. <laughs> <laughs> but, so l- let me ask you a question, man. How much does it cost and how long does it take to take a ferry to Scotland? Uh, that's a great question, man. I, I want to say it's like a, maybe an hour to get over and you'll uh, catch it. I think it's up in... Uh, I'm going to say Barry Castle, but I could be completely wrong. And you'll land on the Kintyre Peninsula down in Campbelltown. Mm-hmm. So if you can make that happen, dude, there are some amazing distilleries in in Campbelltown and on the Kintyre Peninsula. You know what? I'll, I'll get with you offline on that because if we could uh, we could cross another country off the list, man, and see a little bit of Scotland, I'd be glad to see it. Hell yeah. There's, you know, I, I, I don't know why that hadn't even occurred to me, man. I hadn't even thought of that. But, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind going to Scotland. Are you renting a car? Well, uh, well we're definitely renting a car in Iceland because uh, one of the things we want to do, if you don't rent a car, it's very expensive to get, like, one of the all-expenses-paid trips up there. There's a uh, – up in – I think it's in the northern part of Iceland. There's this beer spa where basically you sit in a hot tub full of beer and you have beer taps on the wall beside you and you just sit there in a tub full of beer drinking beer. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah, uh, Ireland, I, we had not planned to rent a car. We had planned to just take the train up to Belfast. Okay. Well, if, if you do, um, yeah, well, we can talk about it offline. I don't want to bore the hell out of people, but yeah. I, well, you know, maybe this is motivation for them to get off their ass and get out there and, and get, get going with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, dude, get out there, travel, see something. If you can scrape together 500 bucks, you can shop smartly and get yourself to Europe. You know, plan it six months out, save a few bucks, get that ticket now, though, lock it in, and, uh, man, get, get the hell off this continent and see something new. I agree 100%, man. So what did you do this week, brother? Oh, crap, dude. I do not have a great answer prepared for that. Um you kind of caught me off guard. Well, with that, let me man. tell you. Come back to me. Come, come back <laughs> okay. to me. Well, you know, as you know, yesterday I went and shot a uh, IDPA match with uh, my buddy Cody, and uh, that went well. I, I, I struggled with a couple of little mental issues, but ended up uh, getting a top ten finish. So I'll take that any day of the week. And um, I had some health issues, man. I don't think we talked about it on the show, but I've gotten cleared from the dock to get my ass back on the jujitsu mats and start kicking ass again so i'm excited about that other than that bro um my son got a truck stuck today so guess what you know i think we talked about in the vehicle preparedness episode 
having a tow rope. And guess what? That damn tow rope, man, I'm telling you, I use it a few times a year and getting people s- stuck out of a jam and it always comes in handy. Man, I got I to gotta get on top of that. I got to get a tow rope. So I don't know how I forgot this, but I went to the range twice this week. I put 500 rounds through a new gun I got trying to, you know, get it get to where I feel comfortable with the reliability of it, which we're definitely going to cover in this show. That's the big thing I did this week. Sweet, man. So anything else we need to cover before we get into the show? I don't think so, man. Let's uh, let's go ahead and get Mike Seeklander on the show. Mike Seeklander, welcome to Across the Peak. Thanks, man. Good to have you on here, man. Uh, I've been on your show a couple times, and I've heard that uh, Rich might have been on your show once or twice. Yeah, Rich was actually on my show once or twice. I mean, he happens to be the co-host. He hides out most days and just doesn't come on at all. But uh, yeah, he's been on a couple times. <laughs> I'm right here, guys. I'm right here. <laughs> uh, sorry, Rich, we're talking about you like you're not in the room, man. What else is new? So, Mike, this is uh, just to just to cue you in a little bit. We, uh, I'm, I'm sure, Rich has talked to you about this off the air, but uh, we're starting a series. We're going to run an episode a month or so on firearms related stuff, and uh, probably at a much lower level than what you guys get into on the American Warrior Show. But uh, our previous episode was just a very brief intro to firearms ownership. We talked about safety rules and kind of the legality of firearms ownership and stuff like that. And today we want to talk about selecting a handgun. So um, where do you want to start with this, man? Well, I was going to say, Justin, before we do that, you know, a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with Mr. Mike Seeklander. <gasps> oh, Shame no. Him. So uh, can I, let me give a brief intro to, to my, my beef fry and, uh, and then let Mike t- t- fill us in a little bit more. Are you cool with that, bro? So today we are delighted to have um, my co-host on the other show, the American Warrior Show, and my friend of almost 30 years, Mr. Mike Seeklander. You may know him as a uh, professional shooter, a competitive shooter, a sponsored shooter, a firearms trainer. You may know him from a lot of different places. You may know him from the IDPA championship. He recently won. Congrats again, bro. Thank you. And uh, Mike, Mike, welcome to the show. And tell us a little bit about yourself, man. Well, I mean, certainly I don't want to go uh, too deep because I'm sure your listeners can jump on any one of the sites and check out the bio. But as you know, I mean, uh, former Marine, I was in the Marine Corps with you and then uh, uh, originally from the mountains of Wyoming, which I think sometime in the near future, we're going to make a trip out there and I get to show you some of my stomping grounds. But uh, after the Marine Corps got into law enforcement and kind of transitioned along a lot of the same pathways that you did, law enforcement at the county level, then city level as a city police officer, and then later on had the opportunity to take over the Federal Air Marshal Firearms Training Program. And then uh, paralleling that, I was really kind of pretty much just shooting constantly. I mean, I was into competitive shooting, got the bug young, always did it, though, in parallel with either law enforcement or the military. Um, I was the uh, the lead instructor for the Federal Air Marshal Training Program for many years and also a flying fam myself and then moved on to both the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Fletsy in Charleston and then to the U.S. Shooting Academy, which is a private institution, and then on to my own training entity, Shooting Performance, and of course, you know, our, our side company, the American Warrior Society. But... Um, it, it almost sounds like I can't hold down a job. I've said that every time I get on a podcast, I was just on two podcasts last week. I'm like, man, I sound like I literally can't hold a job down, but I've always bounced around to the next best thing or tried to facilitate me uh, growing and improving as you know. 
I happened to hear you on one of those podcasts, and I learned something, man. I didn't realize you got your start in handguns with a forty-one Magnum Ruger revolver. Ru- yeah, man, Ruger Blackhawk. And I was like this kid. I lived in Idaho and actually Wyoming during the summer, so I grew up in the mountains. And I was this kid that had every gun magazine known to man. And I also knew every, you know, every handgun variety rifle. I mean, I could name models back then that I probably don't know now. And for whatever reason, after months and maybe even a year of research, I settled for whatever weird reason uh, on the Ruger Blackhawk 41 Magnum as my first primary revolver other than 22s. I had owned 22s, you know, had a Ruger single six and some different revolvers, but that was my first big bore centerfire revolver. Uh, isn't that crazy? That sure is, and that's a uh, that, that's a pretty neat revolver, man. Um, as most of our listeners know, I have a blog about revolvers, dude. I don't have the first lick of experience with a single action revolver, so you you got me on that one. Yeah, man. Well, I mean, I I started out with a single action, and the Blackhawk. I had, I'm sure, I, I knew some technical things that that made me uh, decide on a Blackhawk. And then I later on graduated to a Ruger Redhawk, which is the double action variety. It's still a heavy framed uh, caliber. And, and once again, the 41 Magnum, you know, that's a, a kind of a weird caliber. A lot of people talk 44 Magnum. I couldn't do a 44 Magnum. I had to do a 41 Magnum. I, I don't even know why back in the day, but if, did you, I don't know if you heard on the show, but my literally folks, and this is kind of weird, my daily activity, and I don't even know if Rich knows this, was to go home, get off the bus, and I would uh, take my Ruger Blackhawk, I would take 50 rounds that I hand-loaded on a, a Lee single-stage press, walk out to a snowbank that had kind of a hilly, like a backstop, I had like a, a berm, I would, I would set a paper plate in the snowbank that had a little, like maybe two-inch circle drawn with a black marker on, marker on it, and I would practice shooting 50 rounds into that block and try to hit it as many times as I could from I don't even know what distance I was at. And then I would I would pick up all my brass out of the snow. I would go in and uh, I would either reload then or do my homework vice versa. But I, then I would reload 50 more rounds on a single stage press and do the same thing the next day, like every single day. It was. Oh, yeah. I knew that, man. That's a pretty cool story, man. So, um, Mike, our listenership uh, some many of them came from the American Warrior Show, and they know a lot about firearms. Uh, but a good chunk of our listenership has no idea about firearms, doesn't own guns, doesn't you know maybe thinking about dipping their toe in the water. And we kind of want to make this show accessible to everybody, regardless of your level of skill. So we we're we're going to going to be talking at a real basic level, and we're probably already getting a little bit above uh, some people's heads. So uh, let's let's bring it back down here, and we. Rich, you and I touched on this on the last episode. We talked about why you might want to get into firearms ownership. Really broad overview. Uh, Mike, what's your take on why someone would want to own a handgun? What are the what are the various uh, uses and purposes there? Well, first of all, if if they are across the peak listeners, if you're going to go across the peak, you'd probably want to be carrying a handgun because there are lots of critters up on the peak that might do you harm. And here's the deal. The funny thing is, in today's day and age, um, and certainly people have the right to embrace firearms or, or not, but if we rewound the clock 200 years, let's just say, right, and you would go, if you physically found yourself anywhere in the continental U.S., aside from the downtown area of maybe a small town, uh, it would be highly likely that you would almost require a firearm of some sort, maybe not a handgun, but a firearm of, of some sort, to defend yourself 
and to hunt, you know, whether that was a shotgun or a rifle or whatever else. Now, we're talking about handguns in this show, so the practicality of a handgun is it's simply easier to carry. Uh, it's smaller, it's, uh, you know, you can carry it in a backpack, you can carry it on your person, you can carry it in a vehicle or whatever else. It's different than possessing and carrying a long gun, whether that be a rifle or a shotgun or whatever else. But I think that if, if people just took a second and said, you know what, we're not talking about a long, long, long time ago, ancient history. We're talking about just a couple hundred years. They would have almost been required to have a firearm of some sort to hunt or to defend themselves or whatever else. You, know, you couldn't go to Walmart and stock up on steaks and eggs and chicken breasts and, and cook them. You know, you were largely responsible to, you know, kill what you ate or at least facilitate in some manner, shape or form. Yeah, that's a great point. I hadn't really thought about that, but, but, uh, yeah, you would. And, uh, yeah, great point. So, all right. So let's, uh, let's break handguns down a little bit. Cause that's a pretty big, broad topic. And we've already touched on this a little bit, Mike, you talked about single action revolvers. I know you're a 1911 guy. Um, Rich, I know you're a striker fired action guy. Mike, I've also seen you shoot double action, single action. Um, can you just talk about the little, the different action types a little bit and, and how they function and what the different nuances are? And if you're willing, give a recommendation of what you think is, you know, the most suitable for someone that's just getting into this? Sure. So if we're, we're talking about action types of handguns, first of all, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people tend to look at, uh, or maybe me and maybe other shooters out there is like, hey, you're a 1911 guy or you're whatever I am, uh, full disclosure to the audience, I am sponsored by Wilson Combat, so certainly I talk about those guns as much as you want me to, but I would never tell someone they necessarily need to go buy a Wilson Combat for their first firearm. Um, I would never tell them they need to go buy a 1911, for example, as their first firearm, although they're certainly an incredible uh, firearm. But let's talk about action types. Like, if you break handguns down into action types, you're going to basically look at, you know, three primary types. Number one, you might find a, a single action or, or single shot type handgun. And then you're going to be able to break the, the, the rest of the handguns. And I'm not talking about every handgun ever designed because there are some weird designs out there into, you know, a revolver. Uh, and typically you're going to find a single action or a double action revolver. A single action is basically one where you're going to physically uh, cock the hammer, and when you pull the trigger, it does a single action and it releases the hammer. A double action, when you pull the trigger, it actually cocks and releases the hammer. That's what's called a double action. And then, of course, there's the semi-auto line of handguns. In the semi-auto line, you know, with a semi-automatic, every time you pull the trigger, the, the firearm cycles and feeds the next round in. Now, in semi-auto, you're going to find different trigger variants or different ways to fire the gun. For example, a 1911 is what's called a single action trigger system. Um, there are some semi-automatics that are double action semi-automatic only, so meaning every trigger pull is a double action style trigger pull. And then there are double action semi-automatics where you fire the first shot double action and then after the slide cycles the first time, uh, the hammer stays cocked and you have a, basically a single action pull. And then of course there's a huge variety of safe action type striker fired pistols. You know, if you look at Glock, they call theirs, I believe, a safe action. They're a striker fired pistol. The XDs, XDMs, the M&P lines, there's a, a huge variety. I think just about every manufacturer is making a striker-fired pistol, which in, in, in essence is a gun that has an internal striker that is probably partially cocked when you load the gun, and then when you pull the trigger, you cock it. it the, the striker actually gets cocked a little bit more and then released. Um, so those are the varieties of handguns we have in terms of the action. Of course, then, you know, Justin and Rich, you have... 
uh, a variety of sizes from subcompact all the way up to a full-size large frame handgun like my old Ruger Red, Red Hawk uh, double action semi-automatic. So is there is there one of those that you would steer people to just generally as a home defense firearm, concealed carry firearm? Uh, is there any of those that you would like recommend people stay away from? Yeah, so let's you know let's talk about that. Let's kind of open up that bag of worms. First of all, I'm not a big fan of recommending something blindly. Um, you know, the listener, you know, if you're listening to me right now and you're thinking about buying your first firearm or maybe your first handgun, one of the things that I would challenge you to do is take some time and figure out what the purpose of that handgun is, right? So you, you might be like me. You might be a, a young kid, a 18, 19-year-old kid in, in Wyoming that wants a handgun that you can carry for self-protection. And a lot of people will say, well, man, a Ruger Blackhawk 44 Magnum or 41 Magnum probably wouldn't be a great self-protection handgun. Well, wait a second. What if you're a young kid, you know, traipsing around in the mountains of Montana or, or Wyoming where you might run into a, a large black bear. Well, that small, you know, barrel or short-barreled revolver might very well be a great handgun for you to carry on a daily basis. You could also uh, hunt with it if you wanted to hunt with it um, and certainly use it for self-defense against uh, the predator of the two-legged variety. So the first thing that I would tell people to do is ask themselves, what's the purpose of my handgun? Like, what am I going to buy a handgun for? Right. And then once we start to figure out what that purpose is, then we can start to kind of subdivide that question into, OK, if I'm going to buy the handgun for this purpose, um, how am I going to use it? What I mean by that is, well, how are you going to carry it? Right. I mean, so are you going to carry it in an external holster holster that you could, for example, if you're hunting or are you going to carry it concealed inside your waistband? You know, like I do the large majority of the time when I carry a handgun uh, and then we can go from there. You know, your you know, your experience, your hand size. You know, those those may all dictate the, the weapon or the firearm you decide to buy, the handgun type or caliber you type to, you, you want to get. But the bottom line is, you know, Justin, for me to answer that question, I would say, okay, I'm going to give you a counter question. What's the purpose of the handgun? Is it self-defense? Is it hunting? Is it both? And how are you going to carry it? Yeah, I like that answer a lot, man. That's a that's a really good answer. And I, I, I think generally... I think generally I would ask the exact same question. If someone's going to be dedicated and carry a handgun uh, on a daily basis, and really, I guess no one really knows that until they try it and figure out all the, you know, like how to actually carry a gun because it's not as simple as just throw it in your pocket and go. Um, I, I, if you are going to be dedicated to that, I would say the the one gun that gets the absolute most use in my house is the gun that I carry on a daily basis. That gun gets shot every single time I go to the range. Most of my other guns just kind of sit here most of the time. Uh, that would probably be the one I'd focus on first. But like like you mentioned, man, if your uh, your cousin Todd Orr traipsing around in the the mountains out west, you've got a very different problem set that you need to think about. Sure. And I, you know, I think once you identify your purpose, like I said, you can start to subdivide and, and make decisions on, on, you know, okay, let's, you know, let's turn left and, and look at the revolvers. Let's turn right and look at the semi-autos. And if you decide to turn right, okay, now I'm in the semi-auto land. What size does this gun mean or need to be? Because if I'm just going to place this thing in my quick access safe in my house, well, I want, I want as big and as robust and as manageable semi-automatic as I can possibly have as a, as a home defense type tool where, okay, if I'm going to stick this thing in my waistband in a holster and carry it on a daily basis, a, probably a smaller, lighter framed handgun is going to, you know, fit that purpose in a, in a better manner than some, you know, full-size gun. 
Now, Mike, I, I think I know the answer to this, but would you recommend just uh, going down to the gun shop and asking the guy behind the counter what you should buy? No. So let's, you know, full disclosure, because there may be some guys that work at gun shops and or gals listening to this, and I'm not saying uh, that there aren't some out there that could absolutely steer you in the right direction. But I can also tell you from personal experience, I have had more students and uh, as well as online questions via email uh, ask the questions or approach me with a firearm question or a firearm they own that was recommended to them by the local person in the gun shop that was absolutely positively not the right gun for them. You know, and funny thing is oftentimes uh, those are female students. Number one, they show up with a revolver that they, they, they can't manage and they can't manage the trigger on uh, because of hand strength issues and or, and or training or they end up with a semi-automatic that has some sort of manipulation device, for example, like a, you know, a thumb safety or something they're required to manipulate on a regular basis, which once again gives them trouble. And I, you know, that, I think that's one of the problems is everybody thinks that the thing they like is gonna solve the problem for something else or someone else. People need to individually select a firearm based on once again, you know, their needs and then everything else that relates to them, not to the person selling them the firearm. Because, you know, honestly, if I'm going to tell you, hey, what, what's a great gun? Well, I'm going to probably show you things that I like. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that what I like is going to solve the problem you have. Speaking of that, Mike, I know, I know at some point we probably need to get into it. I believe you developed this thing called a REAP. Uh, and I would say once they decide what they want that handgun to do for them, that might be a good model for explaining what they should be looking for. What do you think? Sure. So, you know, when we're talking about REAP, do you want me to go through what that stands for, Rich? Yeah, please. So let's say we've decided to take a left turn or take a right turn. Let's take a right turn and dive into some automatics. And then we decide, okay, uh, I'm going to keep this in a quick access safe part of the time, but I may also carry the gun sometime in the future. So we decide to go with a medium-sized handgun, maybe even down in the compact lane of semi-automatic handguns. Um, we determine that, okay, a 9mm is a, a fantastic caliber. Uh, it will do everything I needed to do because I'm not going to be up in the mountains in Montana and have to address a full-size grizzly bear. I'm probably just going to defend myself against a man or a woman in my house or maybe a dog because I live in the city. Okay, so we're going to pick 9mm as our caliber. Once we've selected those things and then we've decided to go with a model, and I talk about models here in a second, like what firearm model and what manufacturer, we need to find one that passes my REAP test. So REAP stands for Reliability, Ergonomics, Accuracy, and Power. And notice that if we look at REAP in order, the R is number one. So you, whatever gun you choose, it absolutely has to be reliable. Um, with serviceable magazines and ammunition, my personal test is I should be able to shoot a thousand rounds of ammunition um, with light lubrication, but not having to clean or service that firearm uh, without it failing. It should absolutely do that. Okay, so think about reliability. If you know if you're going to shoot the gun for whatever reason, and that you know you literally may be at the range just practicing and plinking. Maybe you're just a recreational shooter, but if you're going to shoot the gun, you want it to go bang, so it has to work. Ergonomics. That means the grip. You know, how does it fit my hand? The controls. Can I can I reach and manipulate the safety levers? Can I uh, reach the magazine release? Can I utilize the slide stop slash release lever as I need to? Uh, ergonomically, does it does it fit? Can I operate this this handgun efficiently? It, it you know the comparison there would be like 
jumping into a car where you can't reach the pedals or the controls. It just doesn't fit you, right? Like a real big guy in a small car or maybe a small lady in a huge SUV, it just doesn't fit. Um, and then of course, accuracy is, is always important, but what I found is in today's day and age, if it's a, a standard manufactured handgun that's made by any of the large manufacturers, it's gonna be more than accurate enough. Most people cannot outshoot their handgun. And the last but not least is power. And it's not the least important in terms of not being important, but it's certainly not as important to me as reliability, right? I would select a handgun with less power um, as long as it's more reliable. But in terms of power, power simply means selecting a handgun that has enough power to do what you need to do with it, whatever that is. Maybe you're just, like I said, plinking. Well, you don't really, you don't require a, a, a large bore hand, magnum handgun in that case. Uh, you just need something that will do what you need it to do. Man, I feel like that opened up like five different cans of worms of uh, paths we could go down there. So um, starting out with reliability, your personal standard is a thousand rounds with just a standard amount of lubrication, you know, like not soaking it wet, not breaking the gun down and cleaning it. Um, ergonomics, man, I'm, I, I guess what is the um, like, what is the standard uh, like how how I don't know, man, I see a lot of people that are like, oh, this gun doesn't feel good to me. Uh, but if they really put the time in, they can still run that gun. Like, is it being able to reach all the controls or is there a specific, can you go into that a little bit more? Yeah. And I'll give you a, an exact or a specific example. I had a student, um, probably two months ago in a private class. And, uh, this individual was a female with tiny hands and she had a, 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 a handgun made by a large manufacturer. And if, um, when, folks, when you select your handgun, when, one of the things you're going to realize in today's age, most of the, of the polymer frame type systems have interchangeable grip back straps and panels. Some of them have front straps as well, but they have basically uh, different size grips that you can modify based on your hand size. Now, this individual had a gun that had the smallest grip on, this, literally the smallest grip that she could put on this particular gun. It was it would like the, the smallest one they had she could barely touch the trigger with the tip of her finger. So we, we continued to train, and I kept having her shift the gun in her hand, which is a solution to an extent, but if you shift the gun or tilt her, when I say shift, I'm turning the gun in your hand if you can kind of visualize what I'm talking about, so her trigger finger could reach the trigger better, that's okay, but the problem with that is it turns the gun to a position where there's less of the gun aligned with the web of her hand, and more of the gun aligned with just her thumb. So it reduces her recoil control. So I had happened to have another manufactured gun there that had a, uh, a, a smaller grip. So when you go with the smallest grip on the second manufactured gun, totally changes the game. So I said, here, try to shoot this. She grabbed this handgun. And they're, they're comparable sizes. They're the exact same calibers. She said, wow, I can immediately, because the trigger ergonomics are designed, I can immediately reach the trigger I can get a full grip on the handgun. I can still pivot my thumb around to the point where I can hit the mag release if I need to hit the mag release, and I can operate the slide and everything else. So there's a perfect example of one handgun of like nearly an identical size, you know, uh, and caliber being completely different for her than another handgun. So that's a, a good example of the ergonomics. You know, another one might be, uh, for example, a left-handed shooter, right? You have a left-handed shooter, and there are some, some guns out there, some handguns, that are very left-handed friendly, meaning they have, you know, a slide lock or release lever on both sides of the gun. They have an interchangeable magazine release, which is the button that drops the magazine. Well, ergonomics for them might be one where they can switch the mag out and use the slide lock on the other side of the gun because they're left-handed. 
Um, so those are a couple examples. Man, I, I love that. Those are awesome examples. Jumping back to the reliability thing real quick. I forgot this a second ago, but do you, uh, do you run any kind of test on your, the, the ammunition you actually carry? Because there might be uh, some difference between like the full metal jacket ammo that feeds really well that you shoot on the range and hollow point ammunition that you carry in your gun when you're using it defensively. Do you, do you test that or do you have any um, thoughts on that? Yeah, no, that's actually a great question. And folks, if you're if you're not understanding why he's asking that, the, the, the point there is if you're going to test a handgun and you're going to do the reliability test and you're going to shoot a thousand rounds, right? But you if you if you go with your defensive handgun ammunition, that's very likely much more expensive and maybe a little bit harder to come by because you should be carrying high quality ammo, you know, that, that has as much power as you can handle in the handgun, et cetera, et cetera. So that might not be a feasible thing to do. So what I do is I needed to run standard ammunition for a thousand rounds, right? If I have my carry ammo, you know, I want to be able to test and run at least 200 rounds of carry ammo. I know that's a lot. And if you can't afford that, you can tweak that number. And a second choice would be to, to select ammunition that has the same bullet profile. So uh, same bullet profile and same rough, what I would call power factor, not to get too complicated, but the power factor is basically the bullet weight times the velocity and the amount of actual power that the, the handgun round has. And the same power factor ammunition is gonna recoil about the same as your carry ammo. So if I can't shoot a couple hundred rounds of my carry ammo above and beyond, let's say, you know, 500 to 1,000 rounds of my practice ammo, then I'm gonna select some testing ammo that's the exact same bullet profile that maybe I can get a little bit cheaper and then test it that way. And of course, none of this is black and white. You know, if you're like, well, man, my gun ran 900 rounds, is that reliable, Mike? Yeah, that's pretty darn reliable. I just kind of drew the line of a thousand rounds. I think that a good handgun, with uh, that's that's relatively clean and serviceable, and good magazines should be able to run a thousand rounds without you know failing. I love it, man. I love it. So, um, where are we? Re- reliability, ergonomics, uh, accuracy. Do you have a standard? Uh, like there, you should be able to. Uh, I don't know, hit this size target at this distance. But, but because I, one thing I find is that accuracy, uh, the handgun might be inherently accurate if you put it on a bench rest. I've been, I've carried revolvers for a long time. I'm moving away from that uh, because with the, the revolvers that are small and light enough to carry, I, I just can't get the accuracy out of those things that I want. I can't, typically they have fixed sights. And one thing I found is my the revolver I carried for a long time, I filed the front sight and it's still lower. The point of impact doesn't align with the point of aim. And like that gun, just, I cannot get the accuracy out of it. I want because of the light weight and the short sight radius and the long, heavy trigger pull. Do you have a, you should be able to do X with the gun. And that's, that's actually a phenomenal question because, uh, it's going to be individual independent on, on what they have the ability to do. But here's the deal, um, and one of the things that I think the listener needs to understand is that a gun that is inherently extremely accurate, uh, like, I'm not even going to say it that way, might possibly, possibly be less reliable. So, for example, let's talk 1911s because they're, you know, they're a, a handgun that's typically accurized. Uh, if you get a, a Wilson Comet 1911, they'll guarantee a certain level of accuracy. Uh, but I will tell you, though, that the more accurate you make any handgun, the tighter you are 
building it, meaning the tighter the barrel fits up in the slide when the slide goes forward and seats and whatever else. And I don't want to get too complex because I know some of your listeners, this is going to be too far down the path. But the more accurate it gets, sometimes we tend to lose some inherent reliability. So be very careful of that, number one. But number two, any, any production gun out there, I don't care if it's a Glock or a Springfield or you know, a Smith & Wesson M&P series or any of those production striker-fired type handguns, um, you should easily be able to rest it, meaning finding a, a, a good, solid resting position and then shoot, you know, let's say a 3-inch, three, 3 to 4-inch group at between 20 and 25 yards. Now, understand that might be the, on the edge of some people's ability, right? Uh, and I understand that. Uh, but I don't have a set number. But, you know, I can tell you, you know, Justin, if you looked at our ability to engage a human and get a decent hit, center mass on the chest, then we would probably want those rounds to be within a six to eight inch circle in the center, high center chest. If we had to take a headshot, then probably the effective target area is going to be a three inch circle. So my personal standard is if you have to use a rest, use a rest, but you should be able to shoot with most, most standard handguns at 20 to 25 yards, a three inch group. Uh, at that distance, if your skill level allows that. So that's that's what I look for. Now, tighter is better, and there are a bunch of guns that will do a lot better than that. Um, you know, but when we're talking about, you know, the proverbial, I want this gun to be able to shoot an inch at 25 yards, not many people can do that, even from a rest. Not, not, not many people I know personally, and I know all of, probably most of the best shooters in the world, um, and not many handguns can do that either. Could something like as simple as sights uh, help out with the accuracy and not affect the internals of the gun that could, uh, you know, de- deteriorate reliability? Well, let, let's um, let's make sure we answer that in the correct manner. Sights in sights themselves will not affect the handgun's accuracy, right? Sights mm-hmm. will affect your ability to shoot it accurately, if that makes any sense, right? So right, if, totally, yeah. And someone that yourself, you have some visual issues going on. If if I were to give uh, the average person a gun with a red dot sight that was perfectly zeroed, they would likely have the ability to shoot a better or tighter group with that red dot sight than they would with standard iron sights where they have to pay attention to the relationship with the front sight, the rear sight, and the target, as well as the the visual focus points and what distance the, the front sight was aligned or misaligned in the rear sight. So a sighting system will give the, uh, the shooter the ability to shoot more accurately, but as the gun sits there, it won't make the gun more accurate. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because you mentioned red dot sights and, and iron sights. Can you talk about some of the different kinds, Mike? Sure. So, you know, one of the things that I think everybody's going to experience eventually is some sort of visual deterioration. Now, that may be age-related, but oftentimes if, if the people listening right now are thinking about buying a handgun, uh, that visual deterioration may also be stress-related, meaning if you're in a fight for your life and someone kicks in your front door and you grab your handgun that you just bought from a quick-access safe, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to take your vision and then bring that visual focus back to the sighting systems on a traditional iron set of gun, which means we're going to try to focus on or around the front sight. We're going to also visually have an awareness of where the rear sight is. We're going to try to align those two on the person that just kicked in your front door. I could give someone a red dot sight, and a red dot sight is basically a, a, a small electronic sight that you mount on a handgun, also on a rifle. You see all these red dots on the military firearms, and they basically project a holographic image up onto the glass screen of the sight itself. That's the simplest version of me explaining it. So when you aim the gun, 
you see a red dot. And wherever you put the red dot, that's typically, if the gun is zeroed, uh, where you can hit, you know, aside from any parallax-type situations, which is, once again, a road we're not going to go down. So that's what a red dot sight is. Obviously, we can also overcome some of these visual challenges with a laser, which in essence does the same thing, but it projects the red dot, dot onto the threat or onto the target itself versus a red dot sight, which projects the dot onto the window of the scope itself. Cool. Thanks, man. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk about power. Actually, before we talk about that, do you carry a 1911? I do. I actually carry a, a compact 1911, uh, one of the Wilson Combat Sentinels. Awesome, man. Uh, I, I'm I'm a big fan of 1911. So, um, is it a 45? Because we're getting into the power thing. No, nine millimeter, man. I carry nine millimeter with some of the new. I don't know if it's the Federal 124. It's the stuff the FBI just tested, and I also have some um, some 115 grain stuff that's plus P. That's uh, that's actually loaded. Wilson Combat had it loaded. And it's supposed to be optimized for a subcompact. So the, the, when we talk about optimized in ammo, folks, we're talking about uh, the, the, the powder having the most efficiency for the barrel length you're shooting out of. So, you know, certain powders burn at certain uh, rates. And if I'm shooting a shorter barrel and I'm using a slower burning powder, well, that powder is not going to efficiently burn quickly enough to completely burn before the bullet leaves the barrel. So that's the short story version of it. But I'm, I'm actually shooting some ammo. But I haven't, like, I haven't tested it in gelatin or on anything else. But, yeah, man, I'm shooting and I'm carrying a 9 millimeter. Yeah, uh, same here. So um, why 9 millimeter? Can you talk about the power? And, you know, I, I'm sure someone listening to this podcast has heard someone say that they don't carry anything that doesn't start with a 4 or something like that. Can you talk about the caliber thing a little bit? And can you, you also threw out a couple of other terms there that might be foreign to some of our audience. You uh, said 124 grain, plus P, uh, jacketed hollow point, whatever. Can you talk about that just a little bit as it relates to, to power that you're transferring to the target? Sure. So in terms of, of power, there's some facts that we need to throw out there. Number one, a heavier bullet uh, that weighs more. So when I say 124 grains, that's a, a bullet that weighs. If you put it on a little scale, like a, I don't know if a postage scale would do that, but it would weigh 124 grains. A 124-grain uh, bullet traveling at 1,100 feet per second has less power than a 180-grain uh, bullet, for example, which would be a, a 40-caliber bullet. It would be, let's say, a standard 40-caliber, 180-degree bullet at, uh, once again, 1,100 feet per second. And if you compare that to a 200 or 230-grain bullet um, traveling at maybe the same velocity or slightly less, let's say 1,000 feet per second, which would be what you would find in a uh, maybe a 45 ACP defensive handgun round, is going to be more powerful. So you have to accept the fact that the bigger, faster bullet is more powerful. It's going to have more stopping power. It's gonna, probably going to have more effect on the the. the target itself, the threat, simply because it has more mass and it's going faster. Now, we could go down the road of how a bullet actually performs in terms of its expansion, um, but, you know, those are all factors that we can't necessarily control. So why do I pick a 9mm over a 40 or a 45? Uh, a few reasons. Number one, a 9mm uh, and especially some of the new stuff. So 124 grain bullet traveling at whatever feet per second ballistically is nearly as efficient as some of the 45 ACP ammo out there. Although I accept the fact that 45 ACP would be slightly more powerful. But if I can get the same efficiency with less recoil control 
and an increased capacity because if I'm carrying a 9mm XX gun, whatever the gun is, uh, it's a smaller bullet, so I'll likely have nine rounds in my magazine versus six or seven if I had a 45 ACP. So if I have nearly the same amount of power, that's number one on my list, okay? It's, it's enough to do what I need to do in the environment I'm in. Now, if you put me in a different environment, if Rich and I went hiking in Montana, I would not be carrying a 9mm in most cases. I'd be carrying a souped-up 40, maybe a 10mm, maybe even a 45, because I actually just got a new 45. It's laying next to me here because I would be in a different environment, okay? Uh, the second thing about carrying 9mm, for me personally, is it's the caliber I have the most of, it's the caliber I shoot the most, and it's the caliber I can shoot the most. What I mean by that is, uh, from a financial standpoint as well as a physical standpoint, if you have the, the means and you can afford it and you can shoot a lot, you're gonna beat yourself up a lot less in practice shooting a standard, for example, 9mm plus P-loaded round than you would a 40. I mean, when I practice um, with some of my single-stack 40 guns getting ready for a national champion, and I shoot championship, and I shoot them for weeks, like say three or four weeks, several hundred rounds, multiple days per week, I physically feel more pain from that. Um, so it, it allows me to shoot more, believe it or not, shooting a 9mm. And I just have more access to that caliber of ammunition. Uh, but like I said... You know, Justin, I'm, I'm not saying that I wouldn't carry a 45, but I would carry a 45 when the purpose uh, was, you know, uh, caused me to need to carry a 45, if that makes any sense. Absolutely, man. That's a big reason I'm moving away from revolver, or not not moving away. I'm, I'm not selling off on my revolvers or anything, but 9mm ammo is ridiculously inexpensive. It's the cheapest thing you can buy right now, almost, and... Uh, I can I can buy two thousand rounds of nine mil for the price of a thousand thirty eights or three fifty sevens. There's there's not an appreciable difference there. And I totally agree, man. I shot uh, forty five nineteen elevens in the military. My you know, probably six out of my eight years in the military, and I just cannot control forty five better than I can nine millimeter. Well, you know, one of the things about caliber and power is if you carry a bigger, more powerful gun but you're unable to control that recoil as well. We could argue, okay, well, train more or practice more, but the average person, they don't have a whole lot of extra time in their life, right, to go to the range. So, you know, is it worthwhile having a little bit more power if I can control 9mm and it's highly effective, right, if, I, if I'm shooting where I need to shoot? I don't know. I, just, I, I think there's always a trade-off there, but uh, for me, there are a lot of good reasons to carry a 9mm. Yeah, totally agree, man. Rich, what about you, man? Yeah, it's a nine millimeter all the way. Uh, I, I think I think I carried a 45 1911 off duty. That was you know 20 years ago. Ever since then, though, man, it's been well. I carried a 40 on duty, but outside of that, it was a, it's a nine millimeter, bro. There's just like you said, the Federal HST is one example. That 124 grain bullet can do just about anything a 40 or a 45 can do. So it just makes sense. You yeah, want to that... talk about? Oh, I'm sorry, Justin. Oh no, no, go ahead, Rich. I was just going to say, do we want to ask Mike some of the other things that are probably important to this handgun selection stuff, like magazines and all that other kind of stuff? Yeah, before we get into that, there's one other thing that I've heard Mike talk about that I I would like to address here. And Mike, I saw this on one of your videos. Can you talk about the family of firearms philosophy a little bit? Sure. So. Let's go back to our selection criteria, right? So if you're if you're listening, you're like I'm gonna I'm gonna buy my first handgun, right? What's the purpose? All right, so we got the purpose down, 
And then the purpose generally will probably guide us to go left or right. Left the revolvers, right to semi-auto. So we decided to go right again to in, in the semi-automatic line of, of handguns. Uh, based on our purpose, okay, I live in a town, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. I'm going to select the 9mm. Maybe 9mm is your caliber, right? Now we got to figure out what manufacturer out there that's, that's uh, dazzling me with their marketing waves on Facebook or whatever else is going to get my money. How do I select the manufacturer that I'm going to choose? So here's, I want to give recommendations there, then we'll talk about the a family of guns, what I call a family of guns. Number one, please, folks, please do not buy the cheapest, okay? I'm going to tell you, it seems like when we bargain shop and we're bargain shopping for refrigerators, a refrigerator is a refrigerator is a refrigerator, right? That's not necessarily the case. You know, if you look at um, tools, I know you guys had a tool podcast a while ago. One tool or a manufacturer that makes a certain type of tool is not the same as another one. So please don't buy the cheapest handgun. That said, there are some affordable lines of handguns out there that are just fine. But I would tell you that if you stick to a manufacturer that is a leading or major manufacturer, Springfield Armory, Glock, Smith & Wesson, uh, Walter, uh, you know, uh, SIG, if you stick to any of those major manufacturers, Ruger, actually, Ruger has some great semi-autos coming back out, you can't go wrong. You will be okay. You're going to get a good gun. Now, there's some that I prefer over, over the other, but you'll get a good gun. So let's talk about a family of guns. Let's say I decide to go with uh, Smith & Wesson. And I know that Smith & Wesson makes a full-size uh, M&P variant uh, that has a light rail on it that would be too big and heavy for me to carry. But maybe I got a little extra Christmas bonus and I want to get three handguns. And I decide I want a carry handgun, uh, maybe a secondary backup handgun somewhere that I could have in a vehicle if I needed to, or maybe a backpack, and maybe a third one that I'm going to keep in my quick access safe next to the bed. So a family of handguns means, if you look at the Smith & Wesson uh, M&P line, you could buy a full-size gun, like a big, you know, five, five and a half inch gun or whatever with a light rail. You could put a, a weapon-mounted light laser combination on it. It would be bigger, it would be heavier, more robust. It would be probably easier for you to control and recoil because it would be, it would weigh a little more, but it would be just fine in that weapon-mounted safe. In the middle, you might buy, for example, a Smith & Wesson M&P 2.0 or a, a small M&P 9C, which is a compact 9mm. Uh, still, you know, middle of the size, something you could carry if you needed to. Might be a good hiking gun if you wanted to carry an external waistband holster, whatever else. And then the third handgun, this is your daily carry gun, maybe in your city environment, might be something like a shield. Small, thin, lightweight, very easy to conceal. But all three of those guns, when you pick them up, have the same grip feel. They have the same angle, meaning when you point them at the target, they're not going to feel like they're angled up or down. They have the same ergonomics, the magazine release, the slide stops uh, release lever is in the same spot. The slides feel the same. Uh, they may be slightly different spring weights, but they feel the same. The trigger is, they're curved on all three of the guns. They would feel almost identical. So that family of guns, you could seamlessly grab one gun to the other gun and be just as successful shooting it without having to retrain yourself. Uh, and and for, for example, go from one system that requires you to manually wipe off a, a, a safety and then another system that is no safety or, or maybe a double action first shot that would you know, be a violation of that rule. So if possible, if you're a newer shooter, you know, you're gonna get more than one gun. Get a family of guns where everything is the same. The ergonomics, the control systems, they're all the same. So you can train, you can automate your processes, 
And when you pick your gun up, you know, all you have to focus on is managing that trigger and aiming what, you know, doing the aiming processes necessary to hit the target. You know, one other, one other benefit to that that I really like is, uh, let's say you go with like the Glock 17, 19, 26 system. Those guns all share magazines. If you buy Glock 17 holsters, all three of those guns are going to fit in those holsters. There's kind of a, an economic benefit to that as well. Yeah, man. I mean, the, and the magazine thing is, is actually really important. I, you know, I used to carry, a long time ago, I carried an M&P 9C for a while, and I had a, a short magazine in the gun, and I carried a spare magazine. It was actually a full-size magazine, and I could, so I could reload to a full-size magazine if, God forbid, I had to do a reload. So, absolutely. Yeah, so, Mike, I know we keep taking a right turn into semi-autos. Let's say I'm a weirdo. I want to go left. I want to go revolvers, man. Is there any anything that we probably may want to touch on there? So in terms of revolvers, man, once again, they're, they're great based on their design um, and depending on the purpose you use them for. One of the things that I want to throw out there, though, man, is I have, I have had more uh, opportunity to listen to students and to hear the story of, I got a revolver because so-and-so, uh, my husband, boyfriend, maybe my wife, maybe the gun store owner, whatever, said, I need to get a revolver because I'm, I'm new to this and I'm not well-trained and a revolver is the simplest thing I could possibly pick up and shoot. And I couldn't disagree more in a lot of cases with that. I agree that they're very simple. I agree that you could pick up a revolver and pull the trigger and it goes bang in most cases, but Justin will probably confirm that's not always the case. I, I agree with a lot of those things. The, the problem with that is that assumes that you can pick up the gun and you can pull the trigger and you can manage that trigger in a manner where you can keep the gun on target. Because I, I, I would bet money, like actual money, that if you give me two identical new shooters and I lay a five-shot revolver down in front of one of them and I lay a, a, a Smith & Wesson M&P shield in front of the other one, so an airweight revolver and a shield, they weigh about the same, they're about the same size. And I take uh, one of my new shooters and I say, All right, fire five shots into that target at seven yards with a revolver. And then I give the person the Smith & Wesson shield fire five shots into the target at the same distance with that shield. The person with the shield, eight out of 10 times is gonna win. Why? Because it ha it's easier to shoot. There's less recoil to manage, the trigger's easier to manage, they don't have to worry about the big long double action trigger pull, it's just an easier gun to shoot. So, did I get off track there? I'm not sure if that was your question. <laughs> no, I think that was spot on, man, and I, I could not disagree with you at all. Um, I can I can almost put a full magazine into that three inch circle with a shield, but uh, man, try as I might, I'm I'm just not getting to that level of accuracy with a with a J frame Smith and Wesson revolver. They are really challenging to be very very accurate with. Um, man, what the hell else was I going to say about? Oh yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, man, because uh, on revolver guy, actually my. Uh, my one of my other writers there, Mike Wood, which who has been on your podcast once before, just wrote an article. Uh, it's kind of a tongue in cheek, jokey thing about the proverbial guy that it was basically formatted as a conversation between him and some dude that just bought his wife a airweight 357 Magnum and you know loaded five rounds in it and put it in her purse and she's good to go. But uh, yeah, man, I, I thought we were kind of past that day and age, but unfortunately, man, we are not because I was treated to the full treatment of that from my brother-in-law at Thanksgiving dinner this year. 
of how he's going to spend $700 on this ultra lightweight 357 for my sister. And I was, uh, I just bit my tongue, man. Cause what can you say? Well, do you, you know, what's going to happen when she pulls that ultra lightweight loaded with 357 plus P out of the purse and actually pulls the trigger one time. If, if she even gets the trigger pulled, you know, what's going to happen. She's going to literally crap her pants and that's going to be the end of the fight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I, I'll tell you, man. Yeah. The, you you wouldn't think because nine millimeter is by any standard a more a hotter more potent caliber than thirty eight special but man thirty eight special can be really really punishing in those small guns but you can shoot a shield all day man or a or a small Glock or those nine millimeter semi automatic guns do a much better job of managing the recoil anyway we're I'm getting off top off topic here Rich uh, you were before I cut you off a minute ago, you were about to ask about uh, magazines and stuff like that, man. Yeah, I was just going to ask Mike, you know, do you have any kind of recommendations like OEM mags only? No, it's okay to get get off, uh, you know, get some Korean magazines. Is it high cap mag- magazines all that they need to get? I mean, what are some, is there a certain number you like to have for each firearm? What are your thoughts there, Mike? You know, I, I would hesitate to say that, uh, your listeners, people listening right now, should stay away from aftermarket manufactured magazines because there are some great manufacturers out there. You know, Magpul being one, they dominate the AR mag, and, and now I believe recently the AK and the Glock magazines, and certainly nothing bad to say about that company or any other company. I use some aftermarket magazines and some of the Berettas that I run from Wilson Combat, but I would tell the person listening Right now, if they're, the, if they're who I think they are, I want them to keep things as simple as possible, right? Uh, and simple means buy the gun, shoot the magazines with the, uh, that the manufacturer provided. Because here's the deal. Manufacturers, when they build these guns, um, they want to do it as, as cheaply as they can do it, but they want to do it as cheaply as they can build a high-quality product. Because they know if, they, if you buy their gun and you go to the range, and you're all happy about your new Christmas present, and you go to shoot it, and the thing doesn't work, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to, they're going to, you know, end up spending money on someone because they're going to call customer service, and then customer service has to get the gun order sent back, and blah, 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 blah. So the point is, keep it simple, right, folks? That's just a really strong recommendation. Keep it simple. Use the standard factory magazines that came with your gun. Buy a couple extras. You know, if you're going to be practicing or shooting, you're going to probably want to have at least three magazines, maybe up to four or five. If if I were you, I would strongly recommend if you're going to be carrying the handgun or using it as a home defense tool that you you have three or four training magazines that you drop on the ground and step on and do bad things to and three or four clean, serviceable magazines that are just for your defensive purposes. You know, but Rich, you know, we could talk about mags and aftermarket stuff all day long, but I just think people should simplify it. I think the more they simplify, the better off they're going to be. The time they're going to have to do practice, you know, and practicing the things they need to be practicing versus adding to their boxing, you know? Right. And on that, would you recommend the same thing basically for sights? I know we touched on it briefly, but same thing, just try to run what come on, what come on the handgun. Because I know a lot of people, they'll want to put on night sights or a fiber or something like that? So in terms of sights, it's a good question. What sight should you put on the handgun? Uh, one of the things that I think you will probably need to do to a handgun is, is replace the factory sights. Now, that said, there are some manufacturers out there that are putting some great sights on their handguns. 
But number one, we're going to have to want to have robust sights. What I mean by that is there's some handgun manufacturers that put plastic sights in the guns. Those in a, a fight where you're bumping the handgun and things and maybe have to do some advanced skills that we talk about in some of our class, classes like one-handed manipulation drills, you know, those sites are going to fall apart. Um, oftentimes, the sites that come from the factory are also not as visually robust as they could be. Uh, I'm a big fan of fiber optic on all my competition guns. Uh, those that carry on a regular basis may want to look at some sort of highly visual uh, night sights, although there's some reasons why I don't necessarily require night sights on a carry gun. But if you could find something, there are actually some manufacturers making some combination sights that are high visibility fiber optic type, site, type sites. What I mean by that is they have a fiber optic in the site, the front side itself, that picks up illumination from wherever and uh, kind of transmits it down that fiber optic and you can see the front side more clear. And, uh, and so they have a combination fiber optic slash night sight combo that might be good for most people. But find a set, set of sites that will once again meet your purpose and allow you to see exactly what you need to see to align the gun as quickly as possible. And then if you, you know, if you, if you have visual issues, your vision's deteriorating, you know, you're beyond that 45 years old age mark and you're just not seeing as well as you used to see, well, consider, you know, maybe a, an optic on the firearm, some sort of optical, highly reliable optic sight or even a light, a light laser combination or even a laser that will allow you to align the handgun quicker. So speaking of lasers, how do you feel about uh, hanging lights and lasers off the gun? Man, I love it. The, I actually have a, a home defense handgun sitting next to me here in a, a quick access safe that has a light laser combination. I think that assuming you uh, understand the system, uh, assuming that you set the gun up properly, what I'm talking about is a light laser system with a what I call a grip activation switch, which allows you to activate the light laser combination just by gripping the handgun. I'm a big fan. I think that if people had the opportunity to shoot a light laser combination, for example, in a low light environment, and then compare that to trying to manage a handheld light, we're talking worlds of difference. There's no comparison. Um, on a daily carry gun, a light laser combo, if it's small and light, uh, light enough to, to functionally allow you to do that, I think it's a great option. I had a, a laser, I think it's a laser guard pro, maybe it's a light guard pro, whichever, uh, made by Crimson Trace on a Smith & Wesson shield that I carried on a daily basis for a long, long time that I think is just a, a very, very good tool. Awesome, man. What about, what about holsters, Mike? Man, once again, I have not just a box, as you've seen, Rich, boxes of holsters uh, yeah. here, in my, here in my house and here in my garage. You know, holsters are so, uh, man, they're so individual dependent on what you're doing with a gun, how you're carrying your body size. Personally, I'm currently carrying in the appendix position uh, in, a, in an inside the waistband type holster. I'm, I carry typically one made by Precision Holsters or another one made by Spencer Keepers of Keepers Concealment. There are a couple other manufacturers that are out there, but I, I you know, it's, that's one of the things that you're probably going to end up having a, an extra box of gear and five or six or 10 different holsters that you track because the only way to figure out which holster is going to work the best for you is to try different holsters, right? And, you know, if, if folks want more detail on that, I think I have a couple different YouTube videos and that really go into depth on holster selection because it's it's like selecting the handgun. It's like a, a it's a, we could do an entire show on holster selection. So I, I, I know you just said that's a very personalized decision, but let me throw out a plug for precision holsters. So Rich has been kind of hassling me 
for quite a while to uh, to check out Precision Holster. So the other day I did. Actually, we're recording on Sunday. Uh, Monday I ordered a Precision Holster using offer code SEEKAWS as the uh, discount code there. Got 10% off. It shipped the same day. I had this holster on Thursday afternoon. And let me tell you, man, I am fucking impressed to bits with this holster. Yeah, they're pretty good. I like those guys. Uh, well, I guess finally we could talk about ammo and uh, or magazine pouches. Mike, do you recommend that the new uh, person that goes out and get a hand, handgun after they hear this, they, they should get a magazine pouch or not yet? Sure, yeah. I think... Um... I think that if they're, if they've, well, here's, let's, let me rewind. Number one, it doesn't matter what they're going to do with the handgun. Having a holster and a mag pouch, at least initially, allows them the utility of strapping the gun on their belt and then having something that holds it while they're at the range, right? Because, it, you know, even if they're just going to be a recreational shooter and they're out there shooting with their husband, their wife, their son, daughter, or buddy, when they're done shooting, they're going to have to go downrange and check their targets or replace the targets or whatever else. And having a handgun laying there on the table pointing at everybody that walks downrange is not a good option. So the handgun offers some utility. A magazine pouch or two or three magazine pouches offers the utility of holding the magazines as you're training or practicing. Of course, as you evolve, you're going to certainly decide, okay, this magazine pouch works for me. I'm willing to carry this on a daily basis if you decide to carry, or this one doesn't work at all. It comes off my belt every single time I pull a magazine out. I need to take this magazine pouch and throw it in the trash. So certainly, yeah. You know, and interestingly enough, there, there are a couple of manufacturers out there when they sell their firearms, they actually come with a full holster and magazine pouch kit. Uh, some manufacturers don't. I think that everybody should probably get on board with that same process. Um, but yeah, people need to get mag pouches. Now, I, personally, I carry a single uh, magazine, this, uh, spare magazine, uh, and I carry, a, you know, like I said, a single stack compact nine millimeter. So I have nine rounds in the gun, and I have a ten round magazine on my belt. So, um, you know, I've got enough rounds to fight. I typically carry a couple more magazines in my fire or in my vehicle, so I have enough ammo to to hopefully. Uh, do what I need to do. And if it gets worse than that, then I need to fight myself to a rifle or drive away fast. Yeah, great point. What about a, a belt? I know we're talking about, I know we're getting a little off topic, but I, I think if we're talking about, um, I just want to be intellectually honest with those that are maybe are not that familiar. If you're going to get a high quality holster, you're going to get a magazine pouch, you're going to be carrying a firearm in it, man, they probably need to get a, something better than a J.C. Penney's belt, right? You know, the, the belt is the the base layer of the system. If you ever decide to carry the handgun or even wear it to the range, you know, the, the last thing you're going to want is a belt that is cheap and flimsy and allows the holster to slide around and or move or can't left or right because then you're simply going to be fighting everything else. Um, so to understand, when you decide to carry a handgun on your person, and let's be very specific, if you're carrying on your person in a defensive manner, meaning you uh, you think you might have to defend yourself with that handgun, draw it quickly or whatever else, the belt as the start of your system is one of the single most important components. So you've got to select a good belt. By the way, Precision Holsters, they make good holsters. I know, I don't know if they sponsor your guys' show. I don't, I don't think they do, but they make a really, really good belt as well. The daily, My daily carry belt is a Precision Holsters uh, belt. So... 
Get a good dog. Yes. So, same here. Totally agree with that. Man, Rich is. Rich has been hassling me about that damn precision holsters belt too, man. And, uh, uh, I, I may have to break down and do it here pretty soon. Um, Mike, do you have a recommendation on ammo? You mentioned a thousand rounds as a reliability test. And, and that's not just to be clear. That's not just blasting a thousand rounds out as fast as you can. You should be getting some training out of those rounds too. But, uh, how much ammo should the average person keep on hand? I, I like to keep a stockpile of ammo and Rich and I have talked about this, kind of just to insulate me from these wild cost fluctuations that we seem to have every election year and whatever. Uh, and it's several thousand rounds. It's, it's quite a few, quite a bit of ammo. Probably sounds like a big number to people that don't shoot a lot, but what's your recommendation on that? You know, that's, that's very hard for me to recommend something like that simply because I don't know the financial means the individual listening has. But, you know, if, if we were to if we were to go with the logic that you just mentioned, which really actually is very, very good logic, the financial fluctuations of ammo cost are largely dependent on the political state of the, of the U.S. I mean, there have been times when you cannot find 9mm ammunition. So if you, if you buy a 9mm and you decide to practice with it on a regular basis, the first thing we would need to say is, okay, what, what does practicing with it on a regular basis mean? Uh, and, you know, uh, this may sound excessive, but if you're actually trying to gain any level of skill, that means that you're spending maybe a, a, a short period of time, two to four hours on the weekend, one day a week, right? And during that, a couple hours of training, let's say we shoot 300 rounds of practice. Once again, it seems like a lot to some people I know, but honestly, you don't get good at playing the violin by playing the violin once a year, right? It doesn't work that way. So let's say it's 300 rounds and we do that every single you know week for four weeks in a row. That's 1,200 rounds. Uh, in that given month. And let's say maybe you slacked a little bit. Let's just call it an even 1,000 rounds a month. You know, these ammo fluctuations that we've talked about, they last from, you know, three weeks to three months. So let's just round off the numbers that we want to have enough ammo to practice for three months and then enough defensive ammo to survive, let's just say, a good old-fashioned zombie apocalypse, right? So let's just buy 3,000 rounds of practice ammo and 1,000 rounds of, or maybe even 500 rounds of zombie defense ammo, and you're good to go. I love it. Hell yeah, man. So I I, I think that, have we given him enough to think about, Rich? Yeah, I think so, man. And I I know we've kept Mike on here for quite some time now, and I I think we've given our new listeners a lot to chew on this episode. So before we jump off, can I put everybody on the spot? Uh, Mike, what's your your carry gun? Uh, Wilson Combat Sentinel, man. I'm carrying a Wilson Combat Sentinel and 9mm. I love it. Rich, what about you, brother? I'm bouncing back and forth between the Glock 26 and the Glock 19. Depends on what I'm wearing and, and a host of other variables, but uh, yeah. I got you, man. Cool. What do you got? Uh, well, uh, well, currently I'm carrying an M&P shield. I've got another gun that's going through my, uh, my reliability test right now. I don't know if I want to let the cat out of the bag on that just yet. Can't hide money on that gun. That's all I'll say. <laughs> well, I don't have guest house money, uh-huh. Rich. Ouch. <laughs> Uh, All right, Mike. Well, hey, man, we really appreciate you uh, taking the time. We know you shot a match today, and we took a pretty substantial chunk of your evening. So uh, just wanted to say thank you, man. Well, hey, thank you for having me on, guys, and I I appreciate it. Hopefully the listener understands maybe some of the logic of what I'm trying to get across to them in terms of the selection process. Uh, I think a lot of people fall into the trap of picking something because it looks cool, uh, or the gun shop owner said to buy it and or it felt good in their hand. And that has nothing to do with being able to shoot the handgun 
you know, effectively based on the purpose that, it, that they're buying it for. So watch out for those traps and, uh, you know, enjoy your journey. You can, uh, you know, you, you can end up owning a whole heck of a lot of guns, but I would tell everybody listening, no matter how many you end up with, you're going to be a lot better off if you can shoot one or two of them really, really well. So Mike, before we let you off, one more question, man. If people really want to nerd out on this and learn everything they can about running a gun and hear from some of the world's absolute best shooters, where can they go? Well, you could actually probably look into some of the material that we have on the American Warrior Society. So you can go to AmericanWarriorSociety.com, and all of my defensive handgun and competition handgun content is on there. Of course, my pro, our products are on the web store. So for those that uh, we didn't talk about this in the beginning of the podcast, I do have a couple books out depending on the direction people want to go. Defensive handgun training program has an entire chapter on gear and gun selection where we talk about the details, the intimate details of these things. So I would send them to two primary websites or if they want to find everything, go to MikeCClinner.com and that'll kind of guide you as you need from there. Awesome, man. Well, thanks. Thanks again for taking the time, Mike. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Thanks, guys. Well, holy crap, Rich. That was an awesome interview. I got a I got a ton of information out of that man. Some of that stuff I knew, some of it was new to me. But what I like about that most is how approachable Mike makes that. And it's a comp- it's a really, really complex topic. It is. And I like the idea that you gotta you gotta approach it with what are you what are you trying to do with that firearm? And I always liken it to when you think of you know defensive tools, whether it's a firearm or pepper spray or a knife or something. It's like, what do you want that to do? And and then I break it down. It's like a set of golf clubs. You know, you can't play an entire uh, 18 holes of golf with a pitching wedge, right? You have a driver. It does one specific job, and you have a pitching wedge that does something else and uh, various other golf clubs. I don't know. I'm not a golfer, but I think the uh, I think his approach to start it from that was probably a good idea. And then the other final thing, man, with this is if you if you learn nothing more than the reap. And that's the one thing you're going to take away, reliability, ergonomics, accuracy, and power. Dude, I think it was well worth the show. I definitely agree, man. And and I, dude, we, you and I talked about this a little bit the other day on the accuracy piece. I I'm, I'm, have been like kind of struggling mentally to define a standard for that. And I kind of viscerally know what I want, but that means nothing if you can't quantify it and and produce it reliably on demand and you know, his, his example of being able to hit a three-inch target at 25 yards, which, which basically correlates to a headshot at 25. Um, and, and I would take that. The one other thing I'd throw on that is being able to reliably make a body shot on that, you know, eight-inch circle at uh, probably about 50 yards is where I'd like to be. Um, dude, I, I love that methodology. I love the mindset of a family of firearms. I It just appeals to my sense of... I guess kind of minimalism and keeping everything kind of compatible with everything else. What's that term? Economy of scale or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Um, yeah. So economy of scale, I actually use this term today because one of, one of the people on my revolver, uh, blog was like, how, you know, how come revolvers are so expensive now? And I was, or how come they're so much more expensive now? And I'm like, everything's more expensive now, man. Gas is more expensive. Milk's more expensive. Everything's more expensive. But also economy of scale, because for every revolver that's sold in this country, there's probably 50 Glocks sold. Yeah, good point. They just they they just make more of them, and they can uh, they can do it cheaper because they. That's how I would define economy of scale. Is that I don't know if that correlates or not. <sighs> I think I misused the phrase, but I I hear you. 
Uh, anything else before we get into the book of the week? No, take it away, man. All right, bro. Um, not necessarily a gun topic, although maybe it could be. It's The Heart and the Fist by Eric Greitens. And if the listener's like, I think I've heard of Eric Greitens, you've probably heard of him because I believe he was removed from office. Uh, he was the governor of Missouri for only like a, a, a maybe a year, year and a half. But he wrote a phenomenal book. And um, and he's got a phenomenal story, man. And I hated to watch him fall because I really followed his rise. This is a guy, Justin, that I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, but he was a senior fellow at Missouri's Truman School of Public Affairs. And he uh, before that, he was a Rhodes Scholar. He got a Ph.D. from Oxford University, and he talks about it uh, extensively in the books. He was a boxer there on the Oxford boxing team. And he gets his Ph.D., and at, he's a humanitarian, man. He wasn't even the military, wasn't on his radar, but he kept going to these places where he says in the book, I find myself feeding a little girl and handing her a blanket only to come back the next day and find out that some warlord has run through there, taken her food, maybe raped her and stole the blanket. And he's like, I have to do something about it. So uh, that was the heart side of his mission before that. Then he says, I'm going to join the military fuck it, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And he, this guy with a PhD from Oxford embarks on that journey and actually does become a SEAL. He deploys four times. He gets the uh, Purple Heart, Bronze Star, and uh, gets out and, you know, eventually runs for governor and, and gets his ass kicked out. But, I mean, it's a, it's a really good story. He actually took the book and made it into a children's book as well because there's so many of these moral lessons that, unfortunately, he couldn't, he couldn't necessarily live up to in, in his real personal life, but there's some good stuff in there. You know, I'm, I'm of I'm of two minds on this, Rich. And as you were talking, I was I was kind of trying to think of something I don't know smart to say about about what you were saying there. But you know, uh, on one hand, it, I would never go to a firearms instructor that told me you should be able to do this and then not be able to demonstrate that skill him or herself, if they said, okay, here's what you should be able to do in this time limit, and then they couldn't do it, I'd be like, well, if it's so important, why haven't you taken the time to master that skill to actually show me you can do it? On the other hand, you know, there's still something to learn from everybody. I, I've used this phrase in the podcast before, but I never met a man I couldn't learn something from or teach something to. And you you made a good example of this when you talked about way of men and the fact that uh, there's two things, two two big things about uh, Mr. Donovan that are different than you. He's gay, uh, which you're not, and he's an atheist, which you're not. And I, I really admire the the fact about you that you can still be like, well, I, I'm still going to see what this guy has to offer. And and I think that's a thing that we're missing, man. There, there's this. Uh, I'm getting off on a big sidetrack here, but there's this idea of like, ah, oh, he's a Democrat. He's a fucking idiot. I'm not and he's probably not an idiot. He's probably a really smart dude that just believes different things than you do. You, we probably still have some things to learn. And I think that's applicable to here. This guy's not perfect. And he definitely, it sounds like fucked up pretty big. I'm not that uh, familiar with, uh, with his case. I guess he was, uh, charged with invasion of privacy, a, a felony charge, whatever, uh, removed from office and, and all that stuff. That doesn't mean we don't have anything to learn from this dude. So I'll tell you what, man, I will read this book uh, with an open mind and see what I get out of it. Well, you raise a great point, and I think we live in an age today where it's not enough to take your the, a pound of flesh, so to speak, from this person and let them get on with their life. 
it seems like, you know, 10 years from now, it's like, well, can you believe it? He's got a job now. It's like, well, what do you want? You know, what do you want from this guy? And I think that that is criminal justice reform. It's something probably we could do a whole episode on because even as a former cop and as a former correction officer, I will tell you that um, we do a terrible job of this here in America. And I use myself as an example. You know, I got in trouble in the Marine Corps and I got busted. I don't know if you, if you even know that story, Justin, but I got reduced to rank from corporal to lance corporal at a time at which, you know, that was a huge deal. And it was a and it was a big turning point in my life. And one of the reasons why I left the Marine Corps after six years and became a police officer instead of staying in and completing a career like I had planned on was because I felt like I could never get away from that stigma of three years ago, didn't you, you know, Sergeant Brown, weren't you reduced a couple of years ago? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I was. <laughs> like, why are we bringing that up now? That was, you know, another duty station ago, a whole nother lifetime ago. And it was what I did was not malice. It was negligent. So, you know, um, man, I've, I've got a bunch of thoughts on that. First of all, I, I think that goes back to like a very, very basic thing. That's part of being a human. And this idea that we relied on reputation for the longest time before we had written records, which is the majority of human history, we just relied on reputation. So your reputation means a lot. And we still have, even though we have, you know, we can we can look at this laundry list of great things you've done uh, beforehand or, or since whatever bad thing you did. Still, we have millions of years of hardwired, I, I don't know, whatever it is to still go on our gut, look at that recommendation. Uh, I think the other thing I would say is, yeah, I like I don't have a problem with this dude having a job. And that gets to a bigger question of what is prison really for? Is it is it to punish or is it to rehabilitate? And a lot of people get annoyed that, uh, you know, my parents, as an example, I had a cousin that went to jail for uh, actually for stealing money from my grandmother, which is reprehensible, man, absolutely terrible thing. And my parents were furious that he was taking college classes in prison. And I was like, well, well, what do you want? He's going to come out as an ex-con. Like, like, what's he going to do? Like, he, sh- <laughs> like, what's the point of prison to ruin his life for the rest of his life, or to like set him straight and set him up, you know, at least in some measure for success? And, and I don't know the answer to that, man. Um, and then, uh, you know, back. Let me get back on track here. I don't have a problem with someone having a job, but I, I think especially as it applies to leaders. There are people out there that are squeaky clean. Um, you know, I, I can think of a handful of them that I have had the just phenomenal good fortune to interact with in my life. And, you know, even if you're not squeaky clean, um, I've certainly never handcuffed anyone and taken photos of her and threatened to release those or whatever. Like, I, like, I don't think it should be in public office again. I think leaders should be held to a higher standard. Uh, like, it, it's probably, honestly, harder to get a job as far as the you know, list of exact requirements you have to meet. It's probably harder to get a job as a local cop than it is as a politician. It's probably harder to get a security clearance as a military member than it is to be, you know, just granted access to any classified information you want as a, as a member of Congress. So yeah, I, like, I don't have a problem with a dude having a job, but I, I absolutely think we should demand better from, from our, uh, Leaders. Yeah, I come in total agreement. <clears throat> you know, like I, anyway, boy, we. Well, well, go well, ahead, go I'm, I'm going to go one more on this because I, I think this is a good topic. It, it, since we're on it, 
Uh, you know, like Mick. This is this is for the super fans that actually stuck with us <laughs> yeah. uh, through this point. Yeah, if you're like, okay, Mike Seeklander's off. I'm click clicking the button, moving on. Look, look what you could have missed out on. Uh, <laughs> but I will say this: <clears throat> when Mike Vick went to prison, I thought what he did was absolutely disgusting. If you were following the guy at all, you could tell that he was coming off the rails in his personal life. And then he gets uh, arrested with this dog thing, and he goes to prison. Then he comes out, and people are pissed off because he's back to throwing a football professionally again. And I'm like, no, the guy has paid for his crimes, okay? And I'm fine with him moving on. And another example of that, and kind of what's odd, is a movie helped shape how I view this. There's a movie about a real-life hangman named, um, I think his name is Albert Pierpoint, and the movie was The Last Hangman. And it's a true story of Britain's public executioner. Britain had one public executioner, and that was his job, and he went all over the country hanging people. And um, he would hang them, and then at the end of it, he would take their body and just be so tender with it. And people was like, you know, why are you doing that? Why are you washing him and dressing him and making sure him or her, because he killed a lot of, he hung a lot of women too, and um, so why are you doing this, man, showing this guy all this respect? That guy killed a kid or whatever. He's like, this is an innocent man laying here. This man is innocent. He's paid for his crimes. You know, and I, I like that approach. It's it, it, That person that did the horrible thing is over, and now before me is, is an innocent person. I thought, man, that's an interesting way of looking at that. That definitely is, man. And I would, man, that sounds like a phenomenally good book. I would. It's a good movie. It's a movie. Yeah, check it out. Oh, sorry, sorry, movie, movie. Um, I, yeah, I'm going to have to check that out, man. What's the name of that? The Last Hangman. And he... The Last Hangman. Yeah, he ends up, like, um, he ends up hanging a, a friend of his and didn't even know it. He he wouldn't know anything about it. He just showed up there, and the guy walks out. He's like, holy shit. And he did his job, you know, but it, it paid a toll on him emotionally, and I don't want to give away too much, but you'll definitely want to check that movie out. Yeah, for sure, man. And, uh, you know, like, like I said... Um, like what actually is the what is the purpose of the criminal justice system we like we incarcerate some astronomical percentage of our population and we also have an astronomically high recidivism rate because once you're in that system man it is and and I'm not telling anybody to uh you know how to live their life but it's man it becomes incredibly hard for those people to find any kind of meaningful work and you know, I, I've, you know, kind of thought about that and put myself in those shoes. And what the fuck would you do, man? Yeah, I think I think I'm smelling an episode there because I have a lot of thoughts on this from my time in law enforcement and corrections, and you know, and I have a, I have a very liberal degree. My degree is in uh, social psychology, and people will tell you that's the most far leaning left degree you can get. And I'm certainly not that way in my personal life, but I wanted to get a degree that, that had that slant because it makes me think of things a different way. So let's, I'll put some notes together on a, on an episode about the criminal justice system and some of the things it's doing right and wrong. What do you think? Yeah, sounds good, man. And uh, yeah, yeah, it'd definitely be a topic I'd, uh, I'd want to take on. And one other thing about that um, you said that, that reminded me of something is I don't know that you can say I'm not left or I'm not right or I am right or I am left uh, because in some some things I'm very left on and probably so far left that I come back around to the right on and uh, you know and vice versa some things I'm very right on I'm very pro Second Amendment but uh, I'm also very 
pro-gay rights, and, and it's not a gay rights issue. I just don't think the government has any fucking business telling people who they can sleep with. I, I, I ju- And here's where we kind of get into the libertarian bent. Just stay out of my life. I, you know, you know I, oh, man, I get frustrated with the Republican thing because it's like, oh, we're the small government party. And it's like, yeah, small government until it's something you don't like and then you want to legislate it. But uh, anyway, no, yeah, to- no, so, that's probably another topic for another day. Yeah, same here. There was some meme that went around recently and it's like everybody's arguing about this or that. And it said, all I want to do is uh, be allowed to smoke marijuana if I want and carry my gun to my gay friend's wedding. And I'm like, yeah, that that's about me uh but but yeah i I (laughs) agree with you man yeah yeah well i i have no desire to smoke pot no i haven't honestly if if you do knock yourself out man i i I did in the 80s man i i I think i smoked uh i smoked some marijuana before i joined the marine corps in 1988 but yeah, I'm. I'm not opposed to it if that's what you want to do, man, and you're, you're not hurting me. Now, it, it, here's another show about responsible drug use. I think that because uh, I've had to fire people and obviously seen Marines destroy their career with it because they were using illegal substances, and I, I've had some people push back like, "Why can't I?" I'm like, "Well, let me ask you this: Would you want your surgeon, um, you know, under the influence right before you go into surgery?" Well, no. And the guy's response was, well, I'm not a surgeon. I said, well, when you're driving that uh, crane out there, you know, yeah, you are a surgeon. There's people out there you can kill, so you're not going to be on mind-altering substances. But anyway, that's a rant for a whole other show. Yeah, yeah, that's a... That's a, Do you actually know what the big driving force behind getting marijuana criminalized was? No, I have no idea. It was the timber industry. It was a massive, massive threat to the timber industry, and... Uh, uh, Mayor LaGuardia of New York City was was big in on that. The uh, damn it, Rich, I don't remember who the the big timber barons were, but hemp was such a versatile textile. It was a major threat to the timber industry, and they threw uh, just a massive amount of money at lobbying to have uh, any any variation of the marijuana plant criminalized. And uh, it bafflingly, it's a Schedule One substance, which means it has no medical purpose, which I, I think I would disagree with, I, although I'm not really qualified to disagree with it. And the other thing is, uh, the other uh, qualifying category for Schedule 1 is uh, high uh, high likelihood for addiction or high, li- yeah, I think it's high likelihood for addiction. And I, I that just sounds like bullshit to me, dude. Yeah, what's dangerous about when you start classifying drugs like marijuana as a Schedule 1 and so is, let's say, heroin, right? And then somebody uses marijuana and goes, oh, my God, well, that's nothing. Well, I guess heroin's nothing, too. You know what I mean? It's like, no, the, the heroin actually is bad. It will make you highly addictive. It will ruin your life. It can kill you. Marijuana can do yeah. none of those things. It's not addictive. It can't kill you. It's never killed anyone. So, yeah, that was a big mistake, man. That needs to get fixed quicker than anything, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'll have to look into that a little bit more, man. I watched a documentary on that several years ago, and uh, yeah, that was it was a, a huge, huge lobbying effort from the timber industry that basically succeeded in getting marijuana criminalized <laughs> basically at a schedule that flies in the face of all the scientific evidence that was available at the time and, and still today. And unfortunately, man, once something's law, it's massively harder to get that to get that turned back. And I, we're seeing that now and who the hell knows what's going to happen when, I don't know, let's say more than 40 States have legalized marijuana. Like, you know, 
our, our federal law is basically a laughing stock at that point. So I don't know. Who the hell knows? Complicated topic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what's the tipping point? But we are far afield from the <laughs> uh, firearms handgun we conversation. Sure are, we sure man. But uh, let me bring it back around. If you're carrying a firearm, doesn't matter if marijuana is legal in your state or not. You better not be smoking it if you use that firearm. Right on, brother. That, or under the influence of it. Yeah, I agreed. You want to close this out, man? All right, man. Thanks to everybody that listens to Across the Peak. Check out acrossthepeak.com, guys. We've put a lot of effort into some awesome content there. Uh, I'm in the middle of a series about my EDC bag, um, posting a bunch of photos and a bunch more detail on that. Uh, I, I wrote an article that's pretty popular a few weeks ago about some of the lessons I've learned in almost a decade of being a full-time instructor. There's a ton of awesome content and our show notes I'll just tell you, man, are probably some of the best friggin' show notes of any podcast out there. We put a just a ton of time and effort. They look phenomenal. They have links to all the stuff, super pictures, photos of Todd Orr from his grizzly attack, all kinds of awesome stuff in the show notes. So check that out. Um, I guess I won't bore you with anything else. So uh, remember, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous. You've been listening to the Across the Peak podcast. Be sure to visit acrossthepeak.com for show notes and bonus content. Until then, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous.